Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on December 12th by me, Rob Schaff, Pastor of Discipling. Today's the third sermon in our Advent 2021 sermon series entitled, All That Glitters Is Not Gold. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Today is the third sermon in our Advent sermon series entitled, All That Glitters Is Not Gold. Pastor Tim talked about traditions and Pastor Rod talked about family and today I'm talking about parties. So when I say Christmas party, what comes to your mind? Cuddling up with your sweetheart, eggnog and sweaters, fireplaces and Sinatra crooning on the stereo, friends all around, a good time had by all? Or does it send a shiver down your spine, dread to the depths of your soul, awkward interactions, a minefield, a minefield of conversation topics, clashing personalities? Ugh. Ever put your foot in your mouth on a party? Yeah, me neither. I think that everybody loves a good party, though, but I don't think that everybody agrees on what makes a good party. It was 2012 or 2013, and uh, my wife Diana's company was having a Christmas party. It was a dinner party cruise, and it was in Vancouver on a double-decker boat, uh, starting in English Bay and touring around Vancouver Harbor. It was pretty cool. They bust us in from Chilliwack to Vancouver, and we hopped on the boat, and uh, it was awesome. And Diana and I were sitting on the top deck uh, with all the managers. It was pretty tame. There was catered food, polite smiles, pleasant conversation, a subdued tone, and a great view of the city as the night progressed. It was pretty awesome. And on the lower deck below us, uh, they had kind of this different strategy for tackling the party than us on the top deck. They drank a lot. They grabbed the microphone. They told drunk stories and jokes to their deck, open mic style. It became this unplanned company roast. Now, the people doing this uh, were kind of oblivious to the fact that the PA system that they were using on the first deck was piped into both decks of the boat. And so people were getting wasted and everybody thought it was super hilarious on that deck. And on my deck, supervisors were getting very embarrassed and angry as to what was unfolding. Bosses were taking mental notes of conversations that they would need to have the next day with people uh, that they could hear over the PA being like, oh man, we need to talk to these people about how to be respectful, maybe a little refresher on company values, what it means to be a part of our company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was super awkward. I didn't work at the company and I didn't know anybody and I was just kind of along for the ride. I was this passive observer uh, to this, this catastrophe of a party. Now clearly the two decks had very different ideas as to what makes a good corporate Christmas party. The lower deck thought it was about cutting loose and getting drunk and the upper deck thought it was about appropriate restraints, polite team building, that sort of a thing. I'm pretty sure that that's actually the last time that this company ever did a Christmas party that way. Uh, they, they definitely shifted their strategy moving forward. Now, when it comes to Christmas parties, reactions tend to be either all bah humbug or fa la 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 la. And I gotta say, my gut reaction to Christmas parties is more on the bah humbug end of the equation. Um, I don't naturally crave parties. I've heard it explained like this, that there are introverts and there are extroverts. And an extrovert is a person who fills up their tanks by being with lots of other people. They're stereotypically outgoing and expressive and they live for the party. And an introvert is someone who fills up their tanks by being alone or with only a few people. They are stereotypically reserved and quiet and they live to take it easy in solitude. Um, Now, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. Uh, introverts and extroverts. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. I tend to be pretty introverted. And so when I hear somebody say, let's go to a party, it isn't all, yay, let's go. For me, it's more, okay, shoot, hold up. Uh, I got to get in the right headspace for that. Uh, What day is it? How long is it going to be? Oh, man. Sometimes Christmas parties fail on both fronts. They're they're not much of a party, but also they're just like a straight-up caricature of Christmas. 
Now, I'm going to be coming across a bit grinchy at this point, especially when people in general seem to be trying to get all fired up about Christmas. But certain aspects of the way that Christmas is celebrated in our culture, the thoughtless embrace of commercialism and materialism and sentimentalism, uh, that's a hard word to say, and sentimentalism, there we go, and nostalgia and romanticizing winter for some reason, uh, it doesn't get me really all fired up for Jesus. In the middle of it all, I want to yell like old Charlie Brown, uh, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? But curmudgeon rant aside, even as an introvert who recharges in solitude at the end of the day, I do love a good party. I mean, usually if I go to like a Christmas party or something like that, uh, it's, it's like pulling teeth trying to get me there. But once I'm there, I do tend to enjoy myself. I have a good time. It's fine. Um, and again, I do love a good party, but it really depends on what a person means by a good party. And especially these days, parties are kind of tricky. There's there's so much awkwardness that can happen around uh, any kind of social gathering. So what makes a good party? Well, parties are everywhere in the New Testament, and they're everywhere in the life of Jesus. And Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding party. That's John 2. And in Luke 7.36, Jesus is at this dinner party with some Pharisees when this prostitute crashes the party, washes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair, and she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. And it's super awkward for the hosts of the party, but it isn't awkward at all for Jesus. And it becomes this point of conversation this polite dinner party that got crashed. And in Matthew 9, 9 to 13, there's this other time when Jesus is going to a party and it goes like this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now remember, tax collectors were looked down upon for being collaborators with the occupying enemy force, the Romans. And they were seen as political cheats who sold out their own people for an easy livelihood. And you know when you're at a party and you try to avoid political discussions because they're polarizing? Well, tax collectors are literally what you would want to avoid uh, in in, uh, polite company because they were a polarizing political, well, the embodiment of a politicizing political situation, blah, and sinners. Well, these were the immoral people who didn't care to follow the established rules of religion. They had no respect for God and no respect for God's law. And they were kind of the opposite of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, when they look at Jesus, they judge him as this religious teacher. They think to themselves, well, man, if you're only as good as the company you keep, well, Jesus certainly owes us some answers, doesn't he? Uh, We continue on with verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, But the sick, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. That's Matthew 9, 9 to 13. Jesus answers them, well, actually, these are the right people for me to be hanging out with. This is the right crowd. These are people that need God. When Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he's actually quoting Hosea 6, verse 6. And the full verse of Hosea 6, verse 6, 6 reads like this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now in Hosea's day, people loved to party in the name of God, but they didn't love God. Burnt offerings and sacrifices were ceremonies of food and song and dance and good time that people wanted to be a part of. They were special occasions. They were parties within the community. People wanted to be there. These parties were fun. The food was good, but people were missing the point. They were in love with the party, but they were in love with God. These parties were meant to be an overflowing form Uh, They they were meant to be an overflowing of their lives of mercy 
And they were meant to be coming out of their lives of acknowledging the reality of God and kind of this celebration of a corporate celebration of what was an individual reality, them and their relationship with God. But Hosea was saying, man, guys, like you're getting it wrong. Don't go to God's party and miss God. You're missing the whole point of the party. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Pharisees, what is the point of your religious leadership? What's the point of your religious practices? What is the point of your religion if your hearts are far from what God values and who God values? You all need to learn what it means that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. This is a reoccurring theme in the life of Jesus. He's at parties. He's with people. Religious people see Jesus at parties with people, often with undesirable people. And it earns Jesus this reputation among his critics. In Matthew eleven nineteen, it says this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And that's Jesus talking. So I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Wisdom is proved right by our deeds. What is Jesus getting at? Well, what's better in the end? To live a life of love, engaging with people who need God? Or to live a life of detachment from people and committed solely to religious devotion? Well, Jesus is saying that's actually like a false dichotomy. It's not one or the other. Jesus is saying that legitimate religious expression cannot be separated from loving people. It's a both and. And so we really shouldn't be surprised when the Son of God enjoys spending time with people, especially broken people, the people who need him desperately. But there's a big difference between the people that need God desperately and the people that know they need God desperately. And that's the problem. In Luke 15, we have another one of these parties where Jesus is judged for the company he keeps. It reads like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus tells them three parables in response to this charge. And as if to make the point crystal clear, one of them is a story that involves parties. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And we're going to focus on the parable of the lost son because that's the one with parties and that's what we're talking about here today. So it goes like this, Luke 15, 11 to 31. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off, all he had, and he set off for a distant country where there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomachs with the pod, the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring the ring on his finger, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And meanwhile, the older son was in a field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is, he, has, he has him back safe and sound. 
Now the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This story is commonly known as the prodigal son. Now, prodigal is a word that I'm willing to bet we all use, but I'm also willing to bet most of us don't actually know what it means. I tend to think of its meaning as being, uh, you know, kind of like one who returns, because that's the context that the story is about. You know, so if somebody leaves and comes back, I say, ah, the prodigal son has returned. But that's not really what it means at all. Prodigal is a word that means wastefully extravagant. And that certainly describes the behavior of the younger son. He was wastefully extravagant. He squandered all of his possessions, his entire inheritance on wild living, living the vita loca, the crazy party life, until he was left with nothing. The party scene ate him alive. And unfortunately, that's a pretty common tale. The younger son who lives this wastefully extravagant life certainly learns a lesson about how sustainable that lifestyle is. When the money's gone, the friends are gone, uh, he has to hire himself out. Nobody's willing to help him at all. That life evaporates. He's left with nothing but pig feet and regret. What a waste. But Tim Keller argues in his book, The Prodigal God, that the father's behavior is actually better characterized as being prodigal in this story, as being wastefully extravagant. After all, when the son who has wasted all of his inheritance comes home, his father runs to him. And rather than greeting him with a rebuke, he is met with a hug and a kiss, a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, and a party. The fattened calf barbecue. It's time to celebrate. The lost son has returned. Now the older son looks at this party, this celebration, and sees nothing but lunacy. Father, your idiot son who disowned this family, who dishonored you by claiming his inheritance while you were still alive, he made nothing of himself. He's wasted everything, and he's back, and he wants to waste more. He wants to dishonor you more. He deserves a beating. He does not deserve a party. Have you gone crazy, Dad? Like, the only thing worth celebrating here is me, and I've never once left your side, and I've worked hard. The, the older son refuses to join the party. He complains that he didn't get a party, and he's never gotten a party, and it's clear. He hates his brother, and you actually begin to wonder, does he even love his father? The father's response is this. He begs the older son to join the party. So the younger son rebels, repents, and is welcomed back with open arms. The older son sees himself as righteous and honorable towards his father, but is bitter and entitled and unloving and refuses to go along with his father's party. And the father, well, he just loves both boys, and he wants both of them at the party. There's a big difference between the people that need God desperately and the people that know they need God desperately. Everybody needs God desperately, but not everybody knows it, aka not everybody is willing to admit it. And that's what this parable is all about. Both brothers in the parable need their father, but only the younger comes to realize it and admit it. The tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, they all needed Jesus, but the only ones who were eating and drinking and partying and being with Jesus and talking with him and learning from him, the only ones who were doing that was the tax collectors and the sinners. The religious people were not. The, the, the Pharisees, they couldn't recognize that they were needing Jesus. They were completely oblivious to their need. They claimed to honor God, but like the son of God was right there. And they're just like, nah, we don't want that. They were appalled by the parties that they were witnessing. Why? 
Well, Tim Keller writes in his book, Galatians for You, that being enslaved by the idol of religion is more dangerous than being enslaved by the idol of irreligion. The irreligious person knows how far away from God they are, but the religious person thinks that they have it all figured out. Phrased another way, it's easy for self-righteous people to think that they're better than other people because of the good life they lead. And it's hard for a self-righteous people to admit that they need God. The Pharisees are busy gatekeeping who gets to be at God's party. Tax collectors out, sinners out, prostitutes out, cheats out, drunks out, gluttons out. Jesus, who hangs out with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, cheats, drunks, and gluttons. Oh man, Jesus is definitely out of God's party. Jesus, you better clean yourself up if you want to join us at God's table. Now, N.T. Wright, in his excellent commentary, Luke for Everyone, he writes about how the Pharisees' attitudes reminded him of a childhood poem that one of his friends wrote. And uh, I'd like to read it for you at this time. It goes like this. Destroys the nature in this park, litter, he said, without lifting his head. It's a pretty short poem. I'll read it one more time. It's describing a dude picking up trash in a park, uh, grumbling at the litter, but missing out the oblivion, like the beauty of the, the nature around him. It goes like this. <clears throat> Destroys the nature in this park, litter, he said, without lifting his head. The Pharisees were so focused on the wickedness of the tax collectors and the sinners and of Jesus himself for daring to eat with them, despite claiming to be prophet of God's kingdom, that they couldn't see the sunlight sparkling through the fresh spring spring leaves of God's love. Here were all these people being changed, being healed, having their lives transformed physically, emotionally, morally, and spiritually, and the grumblers could only see litter, the human garbage that they normally despised and avoided. And that was a quote from N.T. Wright. Uh, Luke for everyone. You know, it's easy to do this. It's easy to focus on the litter and miss the park because people are messy and it's easier to write people off for their faults than it is to love them through. When people aren't motivated by love, they do things like protest the lost being found. They get upset when broken hearts are mended and when people get right with God. They don't like what it, when it looks like when people take those steps and when people help others to take those steps. And they're happier just to write people off and to condemn them and to feel superior. But God has been loving people and about loving people since the very beginning. And he invites you and me and those people to join that party. Now, I've read this parable countless times before. I've preached on it at youth groups and I've preached it at summer camps. And I've, every time I do preach parable of the, the lost son, there's something new about it that catches me a little off guard. And this time there were two things. The first is this. Like the father inviting the older son in to join the feast, Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to join the party. That's the same today. Jesus is begging everyone to let go of their self-righteousness, their judgmental attitudes, their surely I'm better than them disposition, and to just join Jesus at the party of loving people. Jesus isn't just writing the hypocritical Pharisees off and leaving them behind. Jesus is trying to get them on board with what God is up to. And for this, I am eternally grateful because I have a lot more in common with the older brother than I do the younger. Sometimes I can behave like people are just problems and that Jesus would solve those problems. And then that probably needs that they need Jesus. And sometimes I think that they actually need Jesus more than I do. And that's where it starts to be a problem because that's just a churchy way of saying, I think that I'm better than you. I saw a tweet the other day and I couldn't find it again to properly credit the author, but I think it's still worth repeating anyway. So this is definitely not original to me, but I think it's a really profound thought. It goes like this. It's a strange sort of evangelistic strategy 
to hate the people you are trying to reach with God's love. Maybe the message here today isn't new, but it is a good, clear reminder. You cannot fake loving people. So just stop fake loving people and just start actually loving people, right? Don't make a list of all the ways that people don't measure up. Don't fear what you don't know in people. Don't hate what you don't understand in people. Get to know Jesus, trusting that he is forming you into something new and get to know people for who they really are, who they really are. That takes a lot of work. But meet people where they're at and know them on their terms and ask them about themselves. Cultivate legitimate interest. It doesn't come easy all of the time, right? Ask about their family, their job, what they do for fun, what they want to do in life and actually listen and actually care and love them like Jesus loves you and trust that Jesus is forming and reforming them and you into something new and beautiful. That's what Jesus wanted for the Pharisees, and that's what he wants for us, to join him in loving. And the second thing that stood out to me in this parable this time is this. We had to celebrate and be glad. We had to, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, celebration isn't an optional extra. When the lost are found and the dead are brought back to life, we celebrate. We have to. It's appropriate. It's it's almost required joy, our joy compels us to celebrate. We actually don't have an option. We have to. And if you don't feel the joy that leads to celebration, it's probably possible that you don't understand what has happened. There are many little ways that God's work in a person's life needs to be celebrated, especially in the life of the church. Celebration cultivates joy and thankfulness in our hearts, and it's contagious, and it creates a group culture that people want to be a part of because they can see what God is doing, because we're celebrating what God is doing. We should be quick to celebrate when people take steps towards God. Now, back when I was a youth pastor, we would plan these crazy big events for youth with other youth pastors. We would all team up and they'd be big, huge parties. We did Mudfest, which was this, uh, we would bus a bunch of kids, like 200 to this farmer's field that we would flood and we would eat food and we would dance to music and we'd play games in mud pits. And it was good, clean fun, uh, except for all the mud. And there was events like The Plunge where two youth groups would get together, me, uh, us, and Southridge usually, and we would get like 100 kids together, and people would bring their friends out. We would eat a ton of pizza. We'd play games. We'd have a cool worship concert. We would uh, preach the gospel. Uh, we would go on slurp- slurpy runs, and we'd run through the whole pool. The <clears throat> what pool was it now? The downtown Chilliwack one, the Chilliwack uh, Leisure Landing Center, whatever, other way around. Chilliwack Landing Leisure Center. There we go. We would rent that whole pool out and all of our kids and all their friends would just get to hang on that pool for like a couple hours uh, all to ourselves after hours and then they'd have an overnighter and it was just awesome. Now those parties, those took a lot of effort uh, but they were really ridiculous and they were really, really, really a ton of fun and the hype was very real and we hyped those events like crazy because we knew that they were going to be awesome, that kids wanted to be there, and they'd come, and they did. And all that hype, all that fun, all of that was glitter. The gold was this. Those parties were a chance to love Jesus, to love people, and to love people to Jesus. And we seized those opportunities. That's what the party was for. And in fact, that's what every regular youth night was about. And that's what every community service day at church and every Ruth and Naomi's night and every worship team practice and every Sunday morning service and every beach day and every missions trip. And every time we gather as a church, that's what it's all about. Our youth group was about loving Jesus, 
loving people and loving people to Jesus. It was a party. Now, there are critics who thought that the things that us youth pastors got up to were a waste of time and money. They said that we were just trying to out-party what was going on at the river on weekends and that it was foolish of us. The whole endeavor was a misguided waste because we weren't winning people to Jesus. We were just winning people to dry, dull parties, and uh, we couldn't compete with the alcohol and the drugs and stuff like that that was going on down at the river. Now, to be sure, as leaders and as youth, it is possible to fall in love with the glitter of the party and miss the gold of the party. But here's the thing. People would show up to these dumb weekly, monthly, annual youth group parties and have their lives turned around. Kids who have known nothing but hurt and fear at home. They show up and they find out that God loves them and it changes them. And I didn't have to explain even once to those kids why the party that we were throwing was worth it. They got it. They understood it because they felt love. The Pharisees look at Jesus partying and they see a problem, but Jesus looks at the party and he sees people. When you look at the world around you, do you see problems to be solved or do you see people to be loved? And it's hard to do because you know what? Sometimes parties can be problematic and people can be problematic. And I don't mean because the neighbors won't turn the music down. I mean because the party life can really mess people up and messed up people can really mess up other people. In the parable, that's what happened with the the younger son. You know what I mean? Like he went and he lost everything and he got really messed up. He hit rock bottom. That's unfortunately a pretty common story. I think it's really easy to confuse the, litter, the, the glitter of parties for the gold. We know we have deep needs, but we also know that it's easier, instead of addressing those deep needs, to settle for cheap wants. We all really want to be loved to the core of our being, but you know what? We'll settle for a, a weekend getting wasted because we don't have to think about it. Deep inside of every one of us, we desire wholeness, right relationship with each other, with our world, with God. We want to love. We want to be loved. But sometimes we try to meet that good built-in desire with counterfeit endeavors that will never truly satisfy us. They can't. We all want to have a good time. But nothing good comes easy, and partying can be a shortcut when life's got you down. And on top of that, we know that hurt people hurt people. And many people are deeply hurt. And everyone is just trying to do the best they can to heal their own hurts or to forget them and just try to move on. And, and parties are a way that people do that. Parties keep you busy with fun, getting drunk, with people getting high or, you know, people doing whatever they can to just try to soothe a broken heart. But, you know, that, that can very easily slide into this ongoing pattern of substance abuse that creeps in. And people start to believe, actually, that it's better to feel numb than it is to feel hurt. And that's just the start of despair in a person's life. Now, maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe that's somebody you know. If it's you, don't confuse the glitter for the gold. Maybe you don't have to hit rock bottom like the younger son. You should reach out to like a friend or a family member or one of us on the church staff. The party that you really want to be at where your hurts are healed and it isn't going to leave you broken and empty at the end, that's the party that you are openly invited to. That's God's party, which leads to eternal life. If maybe you don't struggle with the party scene, but somebody that you know does, here's what you should do. Pray for them. Pray that God would draw them out of it and pray that God would give you the wisdom and the courage and the opportunity to walk with them. Ask God too to show you own hurts in your own life that maybe need to be healed so that you can walk beside a person in good conscience and not just unloading your own baggage on them. 
you know, sometimes walking with hurting people, walking with people that are struggling with, with sin or with addiction or whatever, sometimes people aren't going to understand. And you might take flack from people who don't get what you're doing. But keep your eyes on the prize. These are people. These are not problems. Jesus is inviting us to see people to love, not problems to solve. So love them with reckless abandon, with the same love that he has lavished on us. The next time you're at a party with people, be it a birthday or a Christmas or a long weekend or youth group or church, every Sunday, party like Jesus partied. Make the effort to love people where they're at, even the ones people say that are problematic. And that's the gold Jesus was after, people. Family, friends, coworkers, casual acquaintances, neighbors, enemies, people. Wherever there are people, there's a chance to love people and to love people to Jesus. And I think that's what makes a good party. When there are people there, who are there seizing the chance to love people and to love people to Jesus, especially to meet them, uh, to meet the deepest needs of the human heart and not to just gloss over them. Now life is never easy. And these days from floods to pandemic partying is tricky. There's no doubt about it, but there's a lot of loneliness in the last two years. There's a lot of lives that have been disrupted. Normalcy has been out the window and there are a lot of people that don't feel much like partying. And there are a lot of people that couldn't join a party even if they wanted to because of health-related reasons. And, and, and there's also, I think, some people that are probably leaning into partying a little too hard. But here's what I'm preaching about. Here's the whole point of this sermon. As believers in Jesus, we have a Savior that is absolutely worth celebrating. We have a world that loves to party, especially in this season where everybody from kids to seniors want to party at the drop of a hat. We have a God who met us where we're at. We have a chance to meet with people where they are at. We have the love of Jesus in our hearts. We get to love people. We get to love people like Jesus. We get to love people to Jesus. So let's join the party. Here's some discussion questions or some reflection questions for you to think about. When do you find it easy to talk with people? When do you find it difficult to talk with people? For you, what glitters in a party and what's the gold? Think of specific examples. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.